0: Good afternoon everyone, Uh, the symposium and panel this afternoon is to introduce a concept and to discuss in detail what it means uh, to be biosecure, what is biosecurity, and how it pertains to the birds we know and love here on Haida Gwaii. So um, I'll briefly introduce the panel and I'll discuss what biosecurity is in my experience uh, there's a series of questions that the panelists will have a chance to address and at the end there will be an opportunity for all of you to ask questions in the last 20 minutes. Um, so without further ado, I'll get into our panel. On your, on your far right is Mr. Tyler Pete from Guaihanas. <laughs> uh, he is the Resource Conservation Manager for Guaihanas Manager for Council of the Haida and David Bradley, who is the British Columbia Program Manager from Bird Studies Canada, and who most of you know from this morning. So, biosecurity. The images it conjures up when you sort of think about it at first, uh, at least for me, was images of things like SARS, where all of a sudden you have people on planes with illness, and everyone's wearing face masks. In the context of conservation, what is biosecurity? It's something similar. It's how do we prevent the introduction or reinvasion of invasive and alien species to areas where we've done conservation work to try to mitigate the impacts of those species. What does that actually mean? It means preventing the introduction. Has it got invasive plant seeds on it? The boat you're, transporting yourself into an island on? Has it been trapped for rats or mice? Has, have you checked that the boat doesn't have invasive tunicates or other things on the hull? And all of those vectors need to be thought about as a community on Haida Gwaii and managed as a community on Haida Gwaii. Why do we even care about invasive alien species? Why do we even care about biosecurity? As a conservationist, We inherently care about the ecosystems and the the structure of those ecosystems. But if you just go to a strictly economic or cultural perspective from a social perspective, um, since 1500, over 60% of the extinctions on islands have been caused by invasive alien species. That's worldwide. And so we have this incredible impact that we can manage and and help um, all of those invasive species. Uh, as well, um, you know, on a Haida Gwaii perspective, we're relatively lucky in some ways and relatively unlucky in others. We're relatively lucky in the sense that the invasion of these islands by introduced and exotic species is relatively recent. So we still have a chance to do something about a lot of them. Um, and so the, the species that were endemic here have had thousands of years to evolve and create their unique ecosystems. That also makes them, however, uniquely vulnerable. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about very briefly before I start into asking our panelists questions is just that the Maori and the New Zealand people have really come to address the issue of invasive alien species in a super unique way. They have decided to move forward with plans for an invasive vertebrate-free, mammal-free, pardon me, uh, New Zealand in the next 50 years, which is an incredibly ambitious goal and one that they are working very hard to come to. This didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, New Zealand for over 50 years has had programs where they've removed rodents from islands and that cultural shift came about from the fact that they were about to lose some of their endemic flightless birds like the kakapo or the kiwi. And people rose up and shifted their thinking about what they had to do and how they had to do it. And so that's also coming to Canada. You know, as recently as my parents' generation, it was very normal to just introduce a fish into a creek because you wanted to fish rainbow trout. It was very normal to, like on Gwaii, introduce raccoons because there was going to be a need for the trappers to have coonskin caps coming out of their business. So we've already made a huge shift from, "That's not OK anymore." And now we're making the next shift into how do we continue to preserve biosecurity? and how do we continue to address the conservation concerns of invasive alien species? So I'd like to address our first question to all of our panelists, starting with David. Um, what do you see is the main impacts of invasive species on Haida Gwaii, particularly to your organization?
1: Um, well, I think it's, it's pretty self-evident from what's been discussed, the impact on birds and the reduction in bird populations as a result. Um, from Birds Coast Canada's perspective, that's definitely something of concern. We're interested in preserving bird populations and maintaining them um, through the future. Um, so we definitely would like to see a reduction in invasive species uh, or that threat, at least, to, to seabird populations.
0: Could you pass the mic to Robert, please?
2: Well, for this question, it, it's twofold. Uh, one, we look at uh, us as HIDAs as the value that the land, the waters have to us. The impacts that we have overall as far as uh, invasive species coming to Haida Gwaii, we've already seen an impact on some of our medicinal plants, our food sources that are being impacted by invasive plants here on Haida Gwaii, which has a social um, impact if we're not able to harvest these for our sustenance and for our health, um, that's going to impact us as people. we look at, at that as a, a main impact here on Haida Gwaii for us as Haida people as far as our values uh, in restoring our cultural values. Um, so that's one of the main things that I look at within the position that I have is how do we um, look at the invasive plants as a whole to us as Haida people. So.
3: Yeah, these guys are stealing all of my material here, but that I'd, I'd reiterate, I think, what they said. In Guayhanes, what we are noticing is that the invasive alien species are impacting both the ecological and the cultural uh, resources that we've been charged with protecting so that's that's primarily our focus we work with Robert and the CHN to uh, to you know come up with uh, with approaches to monitor and also respond to like diminishing um, those diminishing resources those diminishing values and I think like, you can talk in terms of generalities about like decrease in biodiversity and a decrease in the resilience and, and uh, ecological function uh, but you can also talk in terms of specifics like uh, you know very like species that are listed under uh, that are protected under federal legislation as as being uh, species at risk those we're watching those decline and uh, similarly Ro- Robert mentioned it you know there used to be a wealth of, of medicinal and uh, food and you know cultural use related plants down on the islands and those are fewer and fewer in some islands there uh, so certain species are, are gone completely so that those are the sorts of things that we are watching happen and uh, and we're scrambling to do something about it.
0: So Tyler if you could keep the mic actually, <laughs> passed on back. Um, the next question is why is biosecurity important on Haida Gwaii?
3: Can we turn it up? Yeah maybe I can just hold it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll just. So yeah uh, why is biosec- biosecurity important on Haida Gwaii? Well um, at the very least biosecurity slows the progression of invasive alien species we have them here they're not uh, you know that's they're not homogeneously dispersed across the islands and uh, and uh, having you know a community-wide and island-wide approach to biosecurity i think is going to be the only effective way to first of all slow that down but also you know, or, or uh, curtail it but also maintain some of the gains that we've made um we in the last couple of years guayanas has invested in the eradication of of certain uh, valuable, or sorry certain uh, invasive alien species off some of the archipelago and Unfortunately, we've, uh, we've only recently come to realize that uh, some of those islands, some of those gains that we've made, uh, we're, we're starting to lose ground. Murchison and Faraday Islands have been identified in the last month as having been reinvaded by uh, by Norway rats. Originally, there was a population of black rats there. We spent no small amount of effort and staff poured their heart and soul into eradicating those uh, black rats from those islands. And just in the last, it seems, uh, this summer, at some point, there's uh, one of those vectors that Robin talked about. They either, you know, it's only one or two ways that they would have got there. Either they swam on their own or somebody somebody gave them a lift. And uh, as around about mid-September, we, uh, we've, have data to demonstrate that, that those, both those islands have now been reinvaded. So we're working with, uh, with the Archipelago Management Board and the CHN to you know, determine what the next steps look like. But certainly, uh, I think we, more than anything to me, this, this demonstrates the importance of, of a an, uh, community-wide and island-wide biosecurity approach. We have, uh, you know, our, we instituted some fairly tight biosecurity controls for our own vessels, but unfortunately we don't, we don't control all the vectors. So uh, that's something that we're gonna be thinking about very, very carefully over the next uh, months. And um, with uh, the Council of the Haida Nation, we're gonna determine what to to do about that.
0: Robert or David, do either of you have anything to add to that question?
2: Yeah, I can just reiterate similar to what uh, Tyler has just spoken about. Uh, Back in 1995, there was a project within Langara Island Uh, Same issue with the Norwegian rat Um, and they thought that they had completely eradicated the rats uh, off of Langara Island. And it was a a crucial time and period because at that time uh, we had a fairly substantial uh, peregrine falcon um, nesting colonies. We had about 25 of them on uh, Langara Island. To date, we only have five nesting pairs. Um, so we know that that program, um, unfortunately, did not succeed in what they had set out to do um, and now we're looking at um, working together on trying to collaborate on how can we um, work together and how can we do it effectively enough to be able to eradicate. The population has declined as the seabird colony has declined. That is their main food source. So we know that the invasive species are impacting the seabird colonies because they go ashore to nest. So these are things that we have to look at as a nation and island-wide. And um, it's only been recently that we've been able to sit down collaboratively together and start talking about how do we move forward island-wide as far as Haida Gwaii goes in managing invasive species here on Haida Gwaii. So there's still a lot of work to to do, but um, we've started at least the communication aspects with that, so. Uh,
1: I think I just want to say that BirdSafe Canada is committed to ensuring the conservation of birds on Haida Gwaii, so the efforts that are being made um, by organizations such as yours uh, are definitely something we want to help with uh, as best we can um, by bringing resources to the island as a way to promote that, uh, those activities, um, and so we're committed into the future of, of trying to promote this, this work.
0: I'll just add as well, one of the things that uh, sometimes gets lost when we think about all the islands in our archipelago is that there's the islands where we actually have done rodent eradications, as Tyler was speaking to and, and Robert, but there's also islands that are, for whatever reason that we don't exactly know, are rat and house mouse free. Um, and those are also islands that are really important to us because they have uh, extant ecosystems that are still very intact and they're very high priority for us. In Guayanas, we have a good sense of the distribution of rodents uh, throughout the archipelago, uh, below the the dotted line as it were, but um, island-wide we're just working on that kind of mapping so that we have an idea as to how all of these groups can contribute to keeping those biosecure. Um, Just for everyone to understand a little better, um, I wanted to ask one of you guys what the key features of a biosecurity plan is. Which of you would like to speak to that? Show of hand, (laughs) David?
1: Um, I think prevention is um, absolutely, because you can remove um, invasives from an island, but if you don't prevent them from going back there um, and um, securing the the resources that you put on that island, um, I think that it's not worth anything. So I think prevention um, of spread of invasives
2: is probably the most important thing to be done.
0: Anything to add, Robert or Tyler, on that?
2: I think the first important thing is early detection is is a primary the earlier that we detect an invasive species the sooner we can start coming up with a plan on how to address the issue and as we said then it's a continuous ongoing monitoring and uh, checking your effectiveness of what you're doing so i think that's one of the primaries is we need to detect it first before we can do anything else
3: yeah, I think Robin mentioned it, the three sort of, you know, uh, cornerstones of the, of any biosecurity program are, are uh, prevention, first foremost, and foremost, then detection and response. And I think uh, prevention, like as a community, as a Haida archipelago, I think that's where we can probably make most gains uh, in, in working in a, in a collaborative fashion we have uh, you know I I think back to when I was a kid and those those kind of you know social attitude shifts that that happened like it, it was I remember when recycling was was a big deal and there was a big push to recycle and all of a sudden you know it was the new important thing that everybody could be doing and now you know, my kids don't even think about it. Of course, that stuff goes into the blue bin. And I think that that's, that's where we need to be moving as, a, as an archipelago, is just like shifting that, that consciousness and, and starting to get people. I mean, Robin mentioned it in her, in her introduction. You know, we're already making, we already know that it's not cool to, to dump a trout into that stream that you want to fish. But, uh, but I think we need to push that even further. And, um, and that, uh, so that prevention piece and, and just making people's mind shift around that, and realizing how easily it's done and how important it is that it be done, is, uh, is where I think uh, probably the most important step that we could take.
0: Thanks, I'll just remind you guys to keep the mic pretty close so that everybody can hear. Um, just wanted to ask uh, Robert, what biosecurity planning and activities are currently happening in your organization to protect native species from invasives?
2: Well that's an easy one for me because <laughs> this program just actually started in February. So I've only been in the position since February. So, Currently, the only activities that have happened within my sector have been the rat eradication that happened on Langara Island. Uh, the only other part that's happening right now is the inventory work that we have with the, um, with the peregrine falcon. This was the first year that we had one of the experts um, come up and started training our individuals on um, identifying nesting habitats and being able to um, do a inventory of the overall mating pairs that we have here on Haida Gwaii. Uh, So it was the first year that they're doing it and we've asked them to come back next year and spend three weeks with our crews and training them so that we can take over that inventory structure because we have the whole west coast of Haida Gwaii that has to be monitored also. But right now we're starting off with a small parcel um, as far as giving the opportunity to train our staff to conduct that work island-wide here on Haida Gwaii, uh, because that's one of our indicator species here on Haida Gwaii. So we need to definitely get more training and more experience in that in order to move forward. There are other things that will be moving forward, but as I said, we're still in the infancy of our program, and we're gonna be looking at our friends from Guayanas and other agencies and looking at what they're doing, what are the successes they're having, and what are the things that we can improve on. Um, And of course it always comes down to budgets, comes down to capacity, whether or not we can do that. So those are the things that I have to look at as a program manager moving forward is how can we Um, fill those capacities and how can we uh, provide the work that needs to be done within our protected areas so um, it's a huge strive forward and I'm looking forward to more consultation processes here as we move on Um, like I said we're at the infant stage Uh, that's the only project that has happened within my um, jurisdiction so uh, that's all I can speak to on that one I don't know if the others have any
3: Yeah, I'd add a couple things. Robert mentioned it right at the end there. In terms of community consultation, I think um, one, arguably the most important part of uh, of any biosecurity program is having something that that the community that it seeks to ultimately protect, uh, that they feel that they have been uh, that they own it, that they've been a part of developing it, and that it reflects their their needs and values. You know, it's, it's not it's not necessarily as straightforward as you might think. But uh, I know as, as we you know, progressed with our, our Restoring Balance program, we spent a fair amount of time working with communities and, and different groups within the community to you know, kind of hear what they, what they had to say and troubleshoot that project. And one of the things that became very, very clear is that you know, even though our, our black-tailed mule deer are an invasive species, they were introduced here, and the islands did not evolve with any kind of uh, capacity to, or, or defense against them, people have come to depend on them. And it's uh, you know hunting here is an important part of life, and for a lot of folks, it's a it's a you know major food source. And the idea of losing that food source is not really an attractive one. So it's uh, you know we we heard that uh, loud and clear throughout our uh, the the consultation that we did with uh, with communities around developing that program. And you know I've heard uh, Tyler Bellis, for instance, who who is uh, one of our our um, uh, well he works for Robert, is that right? No, he's- he- okay sorry he works uh, he works with the chn and i've heard him say the same thing like he hears the the same from the north end that you know when people hear about invasive deer eradication they kind of go cold because it's a really really important part of uh of their 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 life and that's that that shift has happened in the the last hundred years since deer were introduced so uh, you can't discount that that is you know you can't just sort of wipe that that concern aside and say yeah well you know but they're an invasive species. You know, it's, it, it has to work for the community, otherwise the communities, you know, they're not gonna embrace it and it's gonna fail. So uh, I think that's, that's one of the key pieces that we've learned in, in developing our approach to biosecurity at Guayanas.
0: So moving on, I'm just curious what, uh, David, you see as the challenges of this work for your organization and what you've experienced in your work around the world with bird studies.
1: I think from my perspective, one of the challenges is continued funding. Um, as, as I'm sure you're aware it's it's difficult to get funding sometimes. Um, that's something we're committed to getting because uh, this takes money to, to achieve um, and it's also quite difficult as somebody who works off island, to maintain those relationships, which are so important. Um, so that's something I'm trying really hard to do is to maintain those relationships as best as possible. Um, but also you know eradication of course is, is, a, is as you know very well is a very difficult thing to do. Um, and we haven't been involved in a lot of eradication work on Haida Gwaii so far, but that's something that we'll be interested in doing in the future. Absolutely.
0: And, and one thing I just want to emphasize as well is eradication is one tool. That's the removal of every single individual from an island uh, of the invasive species. Um, it's quite difficult to do with rats, as David just intimated. Uh, and rats, if there's one pregnant female left, they breed every 21 days and have up to 11 pups. So they're incredibly prolific. Uh, But the other thing um, is control and that's done a lot in New Zealand. Uh, They control to a certain density of non-native deer so that there is that balance that Tyler was speaking to between community values of harvesting for meat and forest recovery values. So there's two kind of levers we can pull on invasive alien species, control or eradication. Robert, I'd like you to speak to how could all of your organizations here and others that might be included work together on this sort of issue of biosecurity in your vision.
2: Well, as I've already spoken to a little bit here, uh, the biggest thing is communication. Communication between the different agencies as to what's happening with each of these agencies and the projects that they're doing. Um, If we don't know what one organization is doing as far as um, biosecurity, it's really tough for us to um, be able to assist or to be able to provide any feedback. I think the biggest thing is being able to get all of the agencies together um, in this type of a, a situation or a forum where we can discuss exactly what is each agency doing. What are the challenges that they're facing, both on the financial side, the capacity side, and of course um, the challenges of the logistics uh, behind it all. When I look at the, the areas that I have to work at, most of my areas are, for, are f- quite remote. So when you're looking at accessibility to be able to get to there, what are the resources that other agencies have that they could provide that may help us in getting access to these um, more remote locations. These are the types of things in communication that we need to get, and I see that as a, the foremost is higher education um, between the agencies and communication collaboratively coming together and coming up with a plan Haida wide not just one area specific. Because we have to look at Haida Gwaii as a whole. Uh, what's happening in one area is going to affect another area. It's not only isolated to that area. So we have to look at it that way. Um, and I think this is the first time that we've been able to come together as different organizations and start collaboratively working together on uh, the biosecurity of Haida Gwaii. And that's the first step. Um, and from that, now we gotta start looking at the planning of how are we gonna continue this work, right? So I see that as a major one right now.
0: Tyler, what do you see as ways that organizations can work together and, and-
3: yeah, uh, well, we've started already. Right? I think that's the the good news, right? Like uh, events like this, pulling people together to share ideas. That's that's the going to be the thin of the edge of the wedge. I think what we what we need to be thinking about is, uh, you know, no one organization taking this work on by itself. Uh, everybody's going to have to a role to play in it, but it's got to be done within the context of, of the entire archipelago. I think you know, I, I, I see a a visitor getting off uh, the plane up in Masset, uh, they're, they're getting the exact same message and seeing the exact same posters and uh, literature and information that somebody who gets off the ferry down down in Skidgate or uh, the people who we go down to talk to in, in Vancouver when you know before they, they jump on their sailboat and sail up here like that that has to be uniform. Um, I think the other the other thing that we can should probably be starting to work towards is you know something like uh, a shared uh, shared management across this whole thing. I, and that, uh, the easiest thing in my mind, would be to push for some some position which was an island-wide biosecurity coordinator. So, you know, I've, I've been talking with, with Robert about that and uh, we hope to reach out to our provincial counterparts as well and see what we can do about that and see if we can make something like that happen. And, you know, it would be a position that would be sort of the uh, the forward face, I guess, of biosecurity. They would be the, the go-to resource for any of the communities that are looking to learn more about this. And, because we know that there's a need. we have. Uh, uh, you know, we've, we've got uh, Bird Studies Canada is working on a biosecurity p- plan for Langara. We've put no small am- amount of effort into our biosecurity programming down in Guayanas, but they need to be nested within the context of one gigantic story. And, uh, and I think that uh, something like that biosecurity coordinator could really, really help that happen. So, uh, you know, the other, the other thing that we've got to start doing is working with community, like municipalities uh, and local governments that, uh, you know, to, to sort of bring their awareness up to to where it needs to be and also, you know, provide them the help that they're already asking for. We had uh, at least one of the villages came to Guayhanas last winter and just said, you know, we, we just put up this new building. It's now infested with rats. What do we do about it? And you know, so that they're turning to, to us as, uh, you know, as a resource for that, I think is a really Clear sign that uh, you know the time is right for for that coordinated approach. So,
0: David, do you have anything to add?
1: No, I, I just have to reiterate what uh, what they were saying. I, I think it's important to have a uh, an island-wide biosecurity officer uh, and funded. That's something that we can help fund as well. So, I think if we all pool our resources together, I think that's something that would be possible, uh, and I strongly support that.
0: <laughs> recorded here today. Um, so, a little pie in the sky dreaming here. What future projects or planning is, A, expected, but B, dreamed of in each of your organizations to help with biosecurity for the future of Haida Gwaii? David, do you want to start?
1: What have I dreamed of? Well, um, I mean, a pest-free Haida Gwaii would be a big dream. Um, whether it's achievable and what sort of time frame we can... Look at that for—I'm not sure, but uh, definitely a pest-free Uruguay would be the ultimate dream. Um, and the the plan and the idea that's been put forth for New Zealand, uh, New Zealand is, is definitely something to strive for. And uh, for them to do that on a much larger scale um, is incredible. And so I think we can learn something from them. So I think we should do
2: that. Tough one to follow.
0: <laughs> Big dreams. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I wish you would have started smaller, but... No, basically uh, on the Haida side, uh, I know that we're looking at trying to get um, Haida Gwaii back to somewhat of its historical state, right? We're looking at it island-wide. Um, how do we get it back to... We're never gonna get it to its old historical weight, but how close can we get it to the historical side? And I think that's something that we're trying to strive and we're looking forward. Um, in the future, right? But we've got to do it bits and pieces at a time. Um, There's no way that we can accomplish it all by tomorrow, right? So we've got to come up with these long-term goals, uh, long-term strategies moving forward. Um, And as we said, the first start is definitely with the pest control, because we know that's a huge impact on Haida Gwaii. The next is the invasive species of plants that we have on Haida Gwaii and there are some projects and works that are going, but we need to expand that. But as we stated, that comes down to capacity and it comes down to funding, right? And I think the more that we can reach out to the communities um, and see about more help, more assistance on a volunteer basis within the communities, I think the stronger we'll become in being able to address a lot of these issues because as we've stated, we can't do it by ourselves it's gonna take every community member um, on Haida Gwaii to be able to achieve the goals that we want, so.
3: Yeah, I think I, uh, I have all sorts of dreams when it comes to <laughs> biosecurity, but uh, some of them, I, I, we've, we've talked about them already. And I think, you know, I, I dream of a, of, a, of a world where I walk down to the dock uh, to go fishing, and I hear a kid giving his dad a hard time because he hasn't, you know, refreshed the rat baits on their boat, or that, you know, uh, I sit in on a community town hall meeting, and one of the the leading issues that that uh, uh, that come up from a grassroots community member level, they're bringing that to their their leadership, their local leadership, is is this this issue, you know, that that they saw some invasive plants, and that can the village go out and eradicate those. Uh, I think that that's that's where I would like you know I I fantasize about seeing this going is that it's just such an ingrained part of our consciousness uh, that it's uh, that we rank it right up there with you know with all of those those other things that have kind of become normal over the years Um, and so that's 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 one dream I think the other one that uh, that I have is that yeah we have we have this unified body this unified approach um, where we can point to one single biosecurity plan that covers the entire archipelago and it actually reaches out to Prince Rupert and it actually reaches down to Vancouver and uh, and it reaches out to other agencies is this whole notion of jurisdiction being an obstacle is you know it, it can be false it can be eventually be made to be a, a false issue you know that we can reach out to uh, the shipping industry and say you know you guys are part of this problem and you can also be part of the, uh, the solution same thing with the fishing industry like it's just we're not we're not talking to those folks yet and you know uh, Robin talked about about vectors, bringing invasive species to the island and spreading the ones around that we already have. And that's, uh, we're gonna need to kind of get to that point and uh, a dream of a day when when that's true.
0: I'd just like to add to that one from from my experience, um, one of the issues that Robert brought up, remoteness and accessibility is is something that is really important here. Um, It's not easy to get to a lot of these places where we're doing monitoring or these islands where there aren't invasive species. And so one of the things that is a pet interest of mine and several of the staff at Guayanas, is the emerging technology and how that will work. Um, In in New Zealand right now, they're working on these little pads that are actually um, baited. So the animals run over the pads and then there's an electronic uh, image of their paw print taken and sent to the office. And so they can identify when rats or mice are running across the pads. And something like that on an island that has been eradicated or is is invasive rodent free would just be such a dream for us to be able to detect early and to be able to address these things early enough that you know there isn't a full-blown reinvasion or reproduction. Um, that's one of the things I really dream of. And then the other thing is, I feel like Haida Gwaii has been a leader in Canada for a long time in the invasive species realm and I want to continue to see it as a leader. Um, I think symposiums like this are really important uh, and also just really reflecting on the history of Langara and St. James Island, early, early eradications that are still in place. So back to you guys. Um, What's required, in your opinion, for biosecurity to be successful? David, have you got some water? <laughs>
1: I can wait, that's okay. Um, obviously commitment is required from all the parties involved. You have to really be committed to it. Um, and planning, correct planning, and having a proper plan that you can follow and, and the procedures are well known by everybody involved so that everyone follows it very, very clearly. Um, and that's been shown very, very clearly in New Zealand. That's how they do it, is they have very strict protocols about... When you visit an island, they have to go through it with stage. I remember I visited a small island off the coast of New Zealand, and to visit it, you had to go through a whole biosecurity screening process. So you go into a room, they lock the door, um, you take your backpack off, they inspect your bag very carefully to make sure they haven't got any seeds. You take your shoes off to have a look at the sole of the shoes, to make sure you haven't got any plants on it. They check to make sure there's no mice in your packs, you haven't got any food in your packs, uh, and then you can put it all back on again, and then you get on the boat and you leave. And only then can you visit these islands. And these islands are very important. You know, they're often the last refuges of certain species, uh, and the, uh, these are pristine environments. So they've been able to get them that way and maintain them through this sort of procedure. So I think that is very important, uh, and to have that sort of procedure in place on Haida Gwaii would be
2: a, a nice future goal. Robert? Education. I mean, you've got to educate people, not only on Haida Gwaii, but you've got to educate the public outside of Haida Gwaii. Those that are going to be coming to Haida Gwaii, uh as visitors. Um, we get a lot of uh, what we call transient traffic here on Haida Gwaii. And those individuals need to be made more aware of the impacts that they could potentially be bringing here to Haida Gwaii. Uh, every vessel that comes here, as David had alluded to, should be inspected prior to coming here um, and making sure that they aren't packing anything, that uh, the, every precaution has been taken. But I think education is is the biggest key to success of any program. Um, if people aren't made aware of what's going on and what your ultimate goal is uh, how can it be successful
3: right? yeah i we've already I think we've already talked about a lot of the stuff that that's required for biosecurity to be to be successful, but there's a few other things that we could mention you know in in, in addition to you know first and foremost on hidedegua that that whole community approach and uh, um I think that you know that that could extend to even the rest of canada um it's right now you know when i look at the the new zealand model one of the sort of subtle differences which is really 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 effective is you know they they treat biosecurity and biosecurity emergencies the same way we treat for, uh, forest fires, right? Like they have a, a central funding pot, and they, I could, as a as a manager, when you know this this terrible news about uh, Murchison and Faraday breaks, I could pick up a phone and say, this rat spill has happened. That's what they call it. It's actually a rat spill, and they say, uh, you know, the fellow on the other side, the end of the line says, no problem. We'll be there in three days with our helicopters, for which we already have contracts in place. We're going to use the you know the rodenticide and 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 in that instance that we've already got stockpiled somewhere, there's already a response at a national level that's, that's been prepared and you have access to, to those sorts of resources when these, when these types of emergencies occur. So th- I think that uh, nationally, both in terms of the Haida Nation and also Canada as a nation, that's where we need to start thinking, is, is uh, you know taking this, this threat that seriously and, uh, and eventually you know devoting those kind of resources towards it. So.
0: And what do you guys feel we can learn from other regions or success stories regarding biosecurity? Robert, do you want to lead off with that, please?
2: Well, I think Tyler just alluded to the fact that, you know, when you look at the examples of New Zealand, and I know that uh, Tyler Pete and Tyler Bellis uh, attended a conference in, I believe it was Scotland, and uh, the information that was provided there by other countries on things that are happening within their areas. Um, I think if we take the successes of what's happening in other countries on projects that are very similar to what we're doing and finding out how did they become so successful. I think that's a primary that we have to start looking at here in Haida Gwaii um, because I know that there was a lot of presentations that were offered there and it would be really important for us to get some feedback on those presentations uh, to be able to understand what worked and what didn't work. Uh, within those areas, because when we look at it, of course it always comes down to capacity and finances and what were other countries doing that made it successful. Um, As he stated, New Zealand treats it as a a major priority and they're putting the funding towards it uh, so that they can make it successful that's what we have to start looking at here Haida wide if we want to make it successful is how can we come up with that cash as we say cash cow in order to make projects successful here on Haida Gwaii. we have to start treating it as a priority and like other countries have done so I think if we can learn from those types of gatherings that they had that Tyler and them were able to attend and the messages they got from other nations and other countries uh, and being able to take those successes here and utilize those. Um, As we stated, there there are probably some technologies out there that they're using that are a lower cost and more effective. But we don't know what they are unless we find out what those other countries are utilizing. So I think that's a key moving forward, is let's identify what's working in other countries that we can afford to do within our own territories here, and let's start moving forward and utilizing those
3: as we go forward. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, Robert mentioned the, the conference that Tyler and I had the honor of attending, and uh, that, was a, that was a gathering of... You know the world's practi- practitioners who you know who practice this art and this science, and uh, it, every seven years or so they get together and they swap their stories about techniques and uh, successes, but also failures and and you know how they responded to those failures and what they did next. And one of those stories that we heard was of an island uh, called South Georgia, and this is a, it's a it's an island, a group of island, but one big one, uh, just you know just inside the uh, the Arctic Circle, and. It, it it was um uh, it was a story that started off as a failure. There was an eradication effort that, that went forward. They thought they were there. It was rats that they are eradicating, the values of course being uh, seabird habitat. And uh, in the two years that they were monitoring after the project finished, they saw you know, zero zero rats and all of a sudden things spiked and, and there was this, this massive reinvasion. And it, uh, and it was thought when, that once they did the genetics work that, that that reinvasion occurred because of a shipping container that, that had been brought to the island islands and uh, just those biosecurity controls hadn't been in place so they had another go at it rather than walk away from it and they they took another run at the project but this time what they did differently was group in a, a larger community of, of uh, not only practitioners but also project partners and that part of that that new community was was the shipping industry and you know they they spend a number of years uh, kind of going over what went wrong and bringing the you know those vectors that sort of caused that reinvasion in as part of the the new solution uh, and the the big celebration that uh, or the good news story that the, these folks had to tell is that after uh, i think it was an almost two and a half year project uh, that south georgia had been successfully eradicated uh, uh, and they were able to declare uh, success after having monitored it to three or four years and it was it continued to be rat free so I think that's you know that that's a to me what was special about that story was that it wasn't just one community it wasn't just one nation it was a, a number of different groups and different organizations different countries working together and uh, where because they they saw that you know they had this this common this common value this common goal and uh, and without that kind of collaboration that that project wouldn't have been. Uh, wouldn't have been possible. So I think that's a good lesson for the archipelago here. It's a, it's a good, like we're on a much smaller scale, um, not necessarily geographically, but, um, but in terms of you know, jurisdictions and, and our different organizations, we can do this. It's, it's been demonstrated all over the world that this, this is entirely possible. And, uh, and I take a lot of hope from that, so.
0: David, do you have anything you want to add?
3: Yeah, I want to add to what Robert said in terms of
1: bringing people together and when we can actually achieve uh, coordination uh, between different countries, doing different work and learning les- lessons. And a really good opportunity happening next year at the International Ornithological Congress in Vancouver in August next year. Uh, and we've actually convened a symposium of eradication experts to talk about case studies. Um, and to talk, particularly we've invited some people from BirdLife International to talk about their successes in the South Pacific, um, but also, uh, I would like to invite people from Uruguay to talk about their successes too, and it's a really good opportunity to discuss that. Um, so,
0: um, One of the other things I just wanted to add, which builds on what everyone said here, is is that this community internationally is incredibly supportive. Uh, it's probably the most supportive scientific um, group that I've been a part of because everybody's willing you to win. Everyone wants you to, you know, get seabirds recovering on your islands in this community, and so there's a tremendous international community, uh, community from, you know, Mexico, South Pacific, uh, New Zealand, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. P- people who've done this work all over the world that are, you pick up the phone and call them, they don't know you from anyone, and they'll happily converse with you for an hour and send you all the resources they can. It's been incredibly um, empowering, and I, I feel like that's a that's a great resource for all of us here on Haida Gwaii. Um, David, maybe you could start off with talking about how, in your perception, the community and public can learn about ways to get involved or implement this type of work.
1: Yeah, so this actually um, brings you back to some of the presentations that we were given earlier today and talking about um, the uh, important bird area network and the fact that has a whole um, system set up to have caretakers of their specific IBAs and then to report on the kind of threats that are faced of birds. Uh, Birds in that IBA. And there are nine, 19 IBAs around Haraguay, uh, around And some of those uh, currently we don't have people to do, occupy that role as a caretaker. Um, so that's a way in which they become, can become involved. And they can help control or coordinate the control of, of rats, for example, um, at their local IBA. Um, so that's a really great way they can become involved is by volunteering as a caretaker of your local IBA. Um, and then participating as a group. You can go out and, uh, and whether it doesn't have to be rats, it can be, uh, as Rob was saying, remove invasive plants. That's something that can be organized as a community group and it's a great way for people to come together and actually achieve something that benefits wildlife. Um, so that's, that's what I see.
2: Well, I see on here that um, they, they asked us to kind of uh, give an example. Uh, A primary example on how we do things within Council of the Haida Nation is we have to have community engagement processes. So we have to be able to get out to the communities, provide the information to the communities on what we're proposing to do, um, the full plan of everything that we're proposing to do, even coming down to the budgets um, and presenting it to each of the communities. Giving them a chance to have feedback, answer any questions that they may have. After that engagement, we then have to go to our Hereditary Leaders' Council, and everything has to be presented to them. Um, In order for us to move forward, we have to get a complete buy-in from all the community members and from our elected representatives in order for us to move forward on anything that we're proposing that is new. Um, Very similar to the position that I'm in now, in order for us to move with this, our strategic plan had to go through the community engagement process. So we involved both Massett, Skittigat, then we went to our Hereditary Leaders Council. Once that was all done, we got the feedback and everything, we then have to bring things to our elected tables to be presented at the table and adopted. We can't make a move unless things are adopted at that level um, within CHN so that we can state that we have the com- full community, high citizenship buy-in to what we're doing. And that's how we move forward as a nation, right? We can't do it without that, because they're the ones that give us the direction. So that's how we move forward on my level, as far as CHN goes. Um, I can't just say, I'm going to do this, right? So. within our, um, our reporting out sessions and our house of assembly, it has to be a majority of the house has to agree on that in order for it to be accepted, right? And we have to have a certain number of people there in order to be able to have what we call a quorum, right? So that's how that's done on our level as far as CHN goes, right? I'm not allowed to just say, I'm going to do this. Right. It has to be presented at those levels in order for myself to be able to get things approved. So I can't just make the decision. Right. It's done on, on basically a height of citizenship. Right. So
3: Um, yeah. So, in terms of how the community and public can learn about ways to become involved in this, um, I guess the first thing I'd say is stop on by. We've got uh, part of our Guayana's mandate is to, is to promote awareness, and and uh, and in order to do that, you know, we'll, we'll share pretty much all the information we have <laughs> on this. We've also, uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about helping out local municipalities and uh, communities, you know, kind of advising them on their on their uh, invasive species issues. That's we're not the only people doing that. I know the province of BC, working together with the council of the Haida Nation, has uh, they've invested a fair amount of energy into uh, invasive plant monitoring. So some of those uh, you know, spots that you've seen drive, driving into town that have uh, flagging tape wrapped around them—that's a Japanese knotweed uh, control initiative. And uh, so you know there's there's actually a lot of knowledge holders on on island, and I think um, there's uh, you don't have to look too far from home to uh, to find some really really good sources of information. To uh, to educate yourself as to you know what you could be doing in terms of you know you and your 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 home life uh, in order to contribute to to the work that's happening on Haida Gwaii. Um, I think the other bit that we can be doing, as Robert says, you know we we just have to keep rolling forward with with some of the the community engagement that we've got. You know. Try and get to that higher level, and like uh, developing a a Haida Gwaii wide uh, biosecurity control plan. And like I said earlier, that's not going to happen unless uh, we work extensively with community groups, hear what their concerns are, uh, you know, because not everybody feels the same way about all these different species. And so that's going to have to be a big part of the work that, that happens.
0: Yeah, if everyone could kind of just say their final sort of summary on that question and anything else you want to speak about with regards to the biosecurity issue, that'd be great, Robert.
2: The other part that I forgot to mention within our organization is we, we have an extensive communications department and we're able to uh, give them and they'll actually distribute the information out to the community at different levels, whether it's a newsletter, uh, Facebook, Twitter, can't remember them all there, can I, Simon? Yeah, but uh, our communications department is the one that gets it out to um, basically all of Haida Gwaii. So we can use them as a resource when it comes to informing our community members as far as it goes for anything that we're doing on a nation level. Um, So they're a great resource for us um, in our departments. So that's what I needed to add to that one. Thank you.
0: Just any final comments you guys have about your feelings from the biosecurity symposium and uh, your thoughts from each of your organizations would be great.
1: Uh, I'm just positively not surprised but a very positive response from everyone in Haida Gwaii. It's really nice to see everyone coming together and so many people here today, obviously they're here because they're interested in this issue and that's really nice to see and I encourage you to take that home with you and talk to other people about this issue because really spreading the word and educating those people that you know is really the first step. Uh, to getting this and then obviously we have to work on other issues uh, but that 's that 's definitely the first step so
2: Well, as I stated before, being in this position, it's a, a new position, and I've got a lot of learning to do myself. Um, so I'm learning at the same time that you guys are, and I'm looking forward to the future challenges that we ha- that we face. And um, as I stated, we've already started the communication links between some of our agencies, and I'm really looking forward to that uh, because, I, as we stated before, I can't do this alone. It's going to take all of us. To, to make this successful as far as biosecurity works here on Haida Gwaii. So I'm looking forward to the new challenges as we move forward and looking forward to uh, working with
3: all of you here on Haida Gwaii. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Robert, it's like we're sharing a brain today. They, we, uh, I think, well, yeah, I, I think the, the last thing that I'd like to express uh, is just a sincere thank you to all of you. For, for coming out and having an interest and taking you know concern with this issue uh, I sort of anticipated honestly that the panel might outnumber the audience here today but like this is this is incredible so my sincere thanks and appreciation uh, to to all of you as representatives from the community that, that lives on islands um, that you you know that you care enough to come to this today and if you do have any questions at all and wonder what your role and where you fit in the work that we're doing with with C uh, Chen with Bird Studies Canada, then uh, please don't hesitate to come up, and uh, and we can answer any questions you might have.
0: Yeah. On that note, does any, if anyone has any questions that they'd like to ask in a public setting, I'd like to open the floor for fifteen minutes for questions, and I can run the microphone up to those guys. I'll leave you guys this one. I hope. Yeah, this is working. <laughs> Well, first of all, I'm very cheered uh, about all of your presentations on biosecurity. I come away from this with a much more hopeful view on what people can do in their communities as individual citizens. And I would like to hear from you a little bit what your long-term thoughts are, or maybe actually should be (laughs) short-term as well, about the relationship between biosecurity and climate change. When Tyler was speaking about the Arctic and the rat eradication in the Arctic, uh, I can see some impact of climate change and biosecurity. Thank you.
1: Um, So I will say that as the climate changes and species distributions change, uh, then it becomes more of an issue because some things that might not be here now might become a problem in the future. Um, We're definitely seeing that with uh, marine invasives. and I know that's something, Robert, you can talk about, I hope. Um, but I mean, with with uh, animals that threaten birds, that's also an issue as well. Um, so we have to be aware of how that can change and maybe just an awareness of, of what potential risks are in the future. Um, just because we have a rat and raccoon issue now doesn't mean that there aren't other animals that are going to get here in the future. So I think it's just thinking about that and, if, and being aware of those potential issues. It, I think that's the way you have to look at it.
2: I can definitely speak to a lot of the climate change stuff that we've noticed uh, prior to taking on this position. I spent 26 years in our fisheries department, so we were able to do a lot of different monitoring work around Haida Gwaii, and we noticed certain impacts of, of ocean temperatures and what it does to certain things within Haida Gwaii. Uh, one of the primaries was the gooseneck barnacle invasion. Uh, there's mussel beds that we used to be able to access on the west coast that we can no longer access, because of the gooseneck barnacles and the flourishing that they have because of the water temperatures Um, played a key role in that, in them being able to spread a lot faster. Uh, Within Skidigate Inlet here, a few years back, uh, we had a huge outbreak of Bryozoan on our macrocystis beds, our kelp beds, uh, which we rely on for our own kelp. That year, we weren't able to um, harvest anything because the herring wouldn't spawn on it so because of the warmer temperatures the bryozoan bloomed like crazy so when we came across the kelp beds we thought it was spawn on the kelp but it wasn't it was actually the bryozoan that had flourished throughout our kelp beds Um, so we weren't able to harvest anything within the inlet so we definitely noticed climate change is having an impact what impacts it's having on other species, until we do more monitoring and more observations of of those types of things, we won't know for sure, right? That's just an ongoing thing that we're gonna have to do here on Haida Gwaii, and that's some of the priorities that we look at under management, is how can we set up monitoring of these types of activities and these types of occurrences here on Haida Gwaii. Um, One of the other... um, Systems there is there's another system out of Alaska that the the citizens can actually get onto, um, And it's escaping me what the website is But there is a system there that the general public can get on and they can actually take photos or put information on there And we'll see Like if our berry patches die early one year is that happening in another area around the world? And if it is, we can start cataloging these types of occurrences throughout the world. Um, Once I get the information, I'll be able to post it um, as to the citizens that are able to join this. Anybody can join onto this uh, website and they can put the information on there. That information goes to experts and experts come back and give you an explanation as to why this could potentially be happening, but where it may be occurring in other parts of the world and is it a commonality? So there's a way of being able to start tracing some of the climate change happenings. Um, I think a lot of us here can speak to our very wet spring and summer. Our berry patches, like the salmon berries, dropped real quick this year because they got so wet, right? So we weren't able to harvest, right? That's an occurrence, was that happening elsewhere? These are the types of things that we have to start looking at worldwide, right? What are the commonalities, Um, but in other parts, like I stated, we can't say for certain whether it's an environmental issue, whether it's something that is happening with the genetics of that specific species. These are things that we determine as we move along. So that's stuff that we'll have to look at in the future here for sure.
3: um i don't have a ton to add to that in fact, I think I missed most of the question i had a visitor there but um we had uh i as i, I understand it it was uh you know what is what what relevance or what's the connection between climate change and and sort of the biosecurity and invasive species issues yeah so um we have i think it's it's too early to tell. Like we, we, you know, the thing, the tricky bit about climate change is that you have to take a long look at it. And uh, you know, there's, we can point to uh, some sort of, you know, short-term incidental occurrences. Uh, you know, the the warm water blob that uh, that was in the headlines last year would be a really good one. You know, there's probably a dozen different things that we've observed in the environment uh, that we assume or that we're, you know, we're with some um some scientific backing that we we are assuming are related to that but yeah, with with respect to uh, climate change and biosecurity and invasive species management generally, I think the key message or the, the key thing is just to be aware that things change and that you have to be taking that long look. So to that end, you know we we have an env- um, env- ecological integrity monitoring program at Guayanas. We're working with Robert to expand you know elements of that program into his protected area network. You know we're talking about how that might look and possibly one of those things looks at. Uh, you know the biosecurity uh, implications of a changing climate so uh, so yeah I think that's that awareness is is uh, something that's present on island, and uh, we just have to you know make make sure that it's something that're we're, we're implementing as well as just thinking about.
0: other questions
2: uh, <coughs> My question is about
0: unintended consequences, and I think as a society We've probably learned a lot of things happen that we don't know they're gonna happen. This is a funny question, I guess. I wanna know if there's any research on the eradication of rats around the world. Uh, they're rats, they're part of us. What's, what's gonna happen? What's your research? Uh, I think I'm actually the best yeah. poised to answer that question. <laughs> um, so, yes, the short answer is there sure is. Um, so rat eradications have been occurring for about fifty years uh, around the world, and a huge amount of research has been done uh, on both long and short-term consequences of eradicating rats., uh, Rats are an interesting uh, species because they're they're native to South uh, East Asia, Asia Minor, as it used to be called, and uh, they co-evolved and traveled with us as humans all over the world. The Norway rat was called Norway Rat because they saw it in Norway when they named it. So um, what I can say is that the tool of eradication and control works very effectively. What they've seen when they eradicate rats on gross levels are uh, increase in the native vegetation because rats eat seeds, uh, a change in the soil structure because they dig, burrow, and uh, defecate, and uh, huge changes in uh, seabird, Uh, recruitment rates, so uh, as well as songbirds and other things. It depends on, uh, black rats are a little more tree climbing, more arboreal, so they tend to have, when you eradicate those, you tend to have impacts up the trees as well, a little more than the Norways. So I would say the conservation gains both short and long term from the eradication of rats are well proven globally in a variety of settings, both tropical, temperate, and all over the place. Does that address your question? Uh, Well, from the rat's point of view, uh, I don't, rats do okay. (laughs) Um, Rats and cockroaches tend to thrive where humans live. Uh, We have a lot of food sources that we don't even think about. Our compost bins, our outhouses, as gross as that is to think about, uh, and all sorts of things that we call waste, that rats call Hello, yummy. So I don't think rats are disappearing anytime soon. We just want to disappear them from said islands where they weren't in the first place.
1: One thing I will say is that uh, when you remove a predator, like a rat, you have to be aware of what release that creates because there's no no longer pressure on what they eat. So if you have an invasive mouse, like a house mouse would be a good example, and you get rid of just the rats, that house mouse population will respond appropriately and there'll be a lot more mice all of a sudden. So any eradication that's targeted on a particular species, you have to take into account the full ecology of the island uh, and realize that. And I think that's what Guayhanas has done quite well with their eradications. Um, And any future eradications, you have to take that into account.
0: Yeah, I mean, one example, uh, on, building on that example, is that we have a native dusky shrew here, which was incredibly suppressed by the presence of rats on islands, and when they were eradicated, the dusky shrew thrived. So things that maybe were released from the dusky shrew predation all of a sudden were being predated more, but since they're cute and native, we loved that. I was just curious if there's any plans in the future to, like, as you continue doing the eradication programs in Guayanas, if there's um, plans to kind of increase the security around those islands in terms of, like, rules with boat access, or if any of the islands are restricted at this point, or yeah, if you're planning on doing kind of more boat monitoring to prevent, you know, re inductions, like what happened at one of the
3: islands. So. Lots of parts to that question. Um, firstly, uh, I think yeah, it, we're it's on it's on everybody's mind. I think to you know we've done we've we've learned a ton by undertaking these projects, and I think what we you know the biggest thing that we've learned is. How it is possible? Like success is, is entirely possible with these projects, and uh, and that that's very appealing, right? Like to, so, I think that that's something that uh, within Guayanas the Archipelago Management Board is thinking about. There are no firm plans to uh, to take on uh, any new eradication projects beyond the ones that we're currently engaged in. Um, uh, by the way, the, yeah, there's we we in terms of that we've got uh, we're going to we have, we have plans to finish our restoring balance the the deer eradication project next summer, and we we're also uh, we've done the preliminary steps with a an urchin eradication program in a very very small part of Guayhanas. Uh and but beyond that I think that's something that uh, that the archipelago management board can can only answer. Uh, it's something that we've talked about. And uh, certainly, you know, it starts with really deciding, I guess, um, where your best bang for your buck is going to be. So, you know, some of the work that we've done in Guayanas this year is kind of directed towards that end of things. Uh, We have, um, you know, a, a bit of an inventory now of islands with historic seabird uh, habitat value, and any future rat-, rat eradication projects, for instance, would probably focus on some of those islands that have have big value. Uh, in terms, I think the, the rest of your question had to do with you know, uh, stepping up our biosecurity controls. Again, that's something that uh, it's, it's probably too, uh, it's probably premature to answer it. What I can say is that we're trying to figure out how it happened, right? And uh, so it starts with that. Like we're, we're, we're trapping rats on on the islands that were reinvaded now. We'll take tissue samples from those, uh, from the rats that we catch, and we'll send it off to uh, one of, in fact there's a, a poster out there uh, uh, that's been put up by one of our, our partners uh, in the project, and they and they're they're doing the genetics analysis for for us. And so part of what they're, we've asked them to do is is uh, an additional bit of analysis to kind of you know determine where these rats may have come from. And once we know that, then we'll think about next steps. And you know could it include increased uh, biosecurity controls? Well, I think it's safe to say it will for sure. Just as to what those controls look like, um, that's gonna be that's gonna be up for discussion, right? We have. Uh, uh, like I said, I'll, I'll come back to the point that you know, you it's um, New Zealand has, has has been a really really good example in finding that balance between having an effective biosecurity program and also not alienating the public that they're trying to work with. And of course, you know, the moment you start saying things like "damn it, we're going to close down those islands and not let anybody go," that's probably not going to work. And you know, it's uh, there, there's going to be a lot of uh, people are going to have some opinions about that. So, uh, so I think it's it's not just uh, uh, we do that in certain small areas in Guayanas, usually related to um, high seabird values or uh, cultural values, but it's not a tool that we use broadly. So. I
2: guess I can speak on more of the legislative side because I was on the enforcement side for so long. Um, When it comes to restraint of like vessel traffic and those types of things, it's got to come from the legislative slide. So it would be something that would have to be proposed and made as far as amendments to legislation in how we restrict vessel traffic within certain areas, uh, policies and procedures that they would have to go through. When I look at it within my area, like Langara, we have floating lodges, but we also have land-based lodges. Those lodges are supplied by barges. Is there legislation in place, or is there legislation that can be put into place that makes it mandatory that they have to go through uh, this screening? we can't enforce that that's something that legislation has to enforce once legislation is made then we have the powers to enforce it right but until those legislations are made we can't do it so it's up to the citizens um, uh, to put the pressure on legislation to make it change that there is this requirement that is that has to be made for all vessel traffic or all those that are within an area when you set up a biosecurity plan. And that's the things that we have to look at. It's not an easy thing because you're dealing with both the federal and provincial levels. Each one of them has their own legislative body. And it's really tough to get them to meld together when you're trying to address these types of issues. So. Is if we could do it, we would probably just say, "Okay, this is what it is. This is the policies and procedures are going to be." Placed, but we don't have the power to do that. Right? There are some restrictions that we can put, but we don't have the overall arching power to do that. Legislation has to do that. So, unless the legislation changes, there's not much we can do. So,
1: I would just say for for ship traffic coming into some of the fishing lodges, for example, um, that's not just. Uh, an issue of federal and provincial governments, but even within those governments, uh, there's several different agencies to to talk about. There's DFO, there's uh, Transport Canada, and they all have their own rules. Um, So coordination between those different agencies is very important to ensure that there is a strict protocol in place to prevent invasives from getting to these islands.
0: And just following on Robert's point uh, and speaking to something Tyler talked about, the South Georgia eradication program that happened cost about 7 million British pounds to do. And as part of their biosecurity plan, they actually proposed changes to legislation that made introduction of an invasive species uh, a chargeable offense under the legislation of of those islands. Um, That's currently under review by the legislative bodies. Any other questions? I have a question from our radio audience all the way from Montreal. Uh, So the question is, we can't do it all. Is there a way to triage uh, either the different species or the different measures or the different islands that we're talking about? Uh, Tyler spoke a little bit about this earlier, um, prioritization of the islands by their values to important species. Um, I'm sure you guys have spoken about this as part of the earlier activities I couldn't be part of. Guayhanas is home to so many breeding seabirds, so islands that have those real priority habitat and historical use features uh, would of course be a priority uh, ecologically. Um, Ramsey Island was chosen for the recent deer eradication in part because of cultural and medicinal plant values on that island and the larger rivers um, and the available range of habitats and ecosystems. Um, And I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that.
1: Well, when we came up with with which IBAs we were going to focus our work on, we definitely tried to prioritize them based on their value for birds. So we ranked them based on the number of breeding seabirds on those islands, both historically and presently, um, but also on the presence of partners. So one of the reasons we focused on this Geek Bay uh, was because uh, they have a partner base. Uh, we have partner base there doing work actively. So you know, trying to get future biosecurity work done in the short term was a sim- relatively simple thing to do. Uh, if not, it's currently being done. Um, some of the other IBAs are much harder because um, for example Angerfield Bay on the west coast rarely gets visited so uh, engaging with groups there is, is a difficult thing to do so we tried to prioritize based on the accessibility of the site uh, and the presence of local partners. Uh, and that's one of the one of the ways that we prioritise certain islands. But so something that you do down in Guayanas is a little different because you can do, you can work with uh, solely based on the ecological value. Um, but from our perspective, we definitely looked at local partners as one of the uh, one of the aspects we take into account.
0: Yeah, the other thing I will mention is that some of the DNA work that's going on on rats in Guayanas is helping us define what are called eradication units. And so those are areas where the rats have free flow genetically. So it's like, oh, this island's full, I'll go over here and breed. And so you can see that intermingling um, in the DNA. And so it allows you to look at zones of the islands and know that if you were able to remove rats from all of the islands within that eradication unit, your chances of reinvasion are much, much lower and the vectors are less, so you can control more of them. So that would be another way to set a priority. I think we have time for one more question. Anyone else?
2: When it comes right down uh, to the um, uh, removal of of these pests um, or the uh, species that you're targeting, I'm wondering, uh, who does that? in Alberta, they have what they call a rat patrol, and when there's a uh, an occurrence, you know, or a sighting of a rat comes across the border, they're they're sent out. And I'm wondering, you know, same with uh, firefighting. You know, when you don't ask the citizens to go out and fight the fire unless it's really, you know, you got no choice. There are professionals that uh, handle that job, and I'm wondering if training these people um, is part of your your plan.
3: Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, we have uh, uh, so so. First of all, I'll back it up before I get to that, and just say I think like what you're talking about is the response part of that you know three-legged stool that we've been knocking around today. The prevention part. Who does that? That's that's everybody here. That that's all of us. But yeah, when it comes time to a response, uh, particularly when that response looks like a uh, you know a full-blown eradication project, the uh, the like the that we've been taking on in Guayanas for the last couple of years, what we've been uh, doing first and foremost is turning to that international community. The folks who have been down these roads before have made the mistakes and learned from them, and uh, and have you know uh, have been become to come to rely on these 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 professionals and I think uh, you know that's something that we heard a lot about particularly in the context of deer eradication now and you know pretty much first thing on people's minds was but you know, I'm a deer hunter. I, I could do this, and I think the short answer is, uh, you know, the, the folks who do this kind of work, they're not hunting. Like, it, there's nothing sporting about it. Uh, you know, the, in the in the words of one of the contractors we had working with us, they seek to neutralize every possible advantage that these animals might have, which means they cheat their butts off. You know, when they when they're out there, and uh, they are so yeah, so they're not hunters. They're they're they are animal animal who who are you know have been trained um, to be. You know, an extremely effective marksman, but also to be able to change and adapt their uh, the techniques that you're using almost on an hour-to-hour basis, depending on how well it's going. So, uh, same thing with the rat. Uh, the you know the rat eradication projects that we've done, we we reach first to the um, uh, to the experts and bring outside experts in. That said, in both those projects, a, a, a big part of what we wanted to get out of it was that that experience and that know-how stays behind on island. So, we, in both those situations, we paired up um, our staff and, with uh, with those professionals and insisted that that there be a, a, a training component to uh, to those projects. So, we now have uh, you know a handful of staff. Now that the contractors have gone, who who know those those techniques? They know those tools, and you know they are going to be the folks that we turn to uh, in our ongoing maintenance efforts. So you know locally, if there's a response requirement, if if you know we have a deer incursion onto a deer-free island, we have people on staff and in the community that we can turn to who have spent time with these with these guys and uh, and have gained that that kind of experience. So it's uh, and I think that's that's an important part. Of this, right? Robin mentioned, it's this, you know, one of the, the complicating factors of doing this type, type of work on Haida Gwaii is the fact that it's Haida Gwaii. We're, we're, we're fairly isolated. And so, you know, you don't want to have to pay somebody to come up from, well, from over from New Zealand or up from the US or whatever. Every time you need to, that kind of helps. We need to build, build that capacity here and, and we've started the process of doing that.
2: Yeah, I can allude a little more to that in the fact that that's one of my priorities is training of our staff. We're, within our nation, we're looking at cross-jurisdictionally trained so that individuals aren't just trained in one aspect uh, of their work. They're actually trained in all aspects of their work so that no matter where they are on the land or the water, they would be able to... Uh, to do any of the work that's needed within there, whether it's a monitoring work, whether it's um, having to do eradication work, it's something that we're looking overarching as a nation is how do we build that capacity while the capacity is to have them cross-jurisdictionally trained. One of my staff members actually is working with Guayanas, and he's part of the deer eradication right now. So he's learning about the dog handling and how they work with the dogs so that we can potentially take that and have somebody that's designated as the dog handler and that crews are being trained with them to be able to do some of that work within my protected areas. But we needed people trained. So when the opportunity came up, I was more than happy to give a staff member and provide that, allow him to have that training. So now that he's got a bit of that expertise and that knowledge, we can utilize that and he can bring that back to my staff Right, so we are looking at that within the interdepartments. departments um, and it's happening on a local level already, like even within our fisheries program. Um, they work hand in hand with the federal fishery officers. Uh, those types of things is what we're looking at as we move forward. We're also, um, our fisheries program is working with Guayanas in the urchin eradication program. So we are training people in these different avenues uh, so that we can keep it locally based. That is our overarching goal because we want to create that economic development within our own islands so that our people are put to work. We're not bringing the outside, right? And the other part is the education part, is letting our youth know what do we need. What are we looking for in 10 years from now, right? We need those biologists. We need those enforcement, we need those managers, we need all of this. But it's the education part. We need to be able to assist them and to help them and guide them within our different departments. And I know Guayanas does quite a great job in that in hiring summer students. So those students that are in college and university come up here, they're gaining the knowledge and the experience they need in order to fulfill that job and that role, right? We're looking at the same thing within the nation level. So it is happening. And not to the large scale we'd like, but we know we're starting that process, it it is. And we're hoping to expand that even more.
1: I don't think I can add anything to what you said. So I will leave it at that because you guys are local and you know a lot more than I do about that. So absolutely.
0: I'd just like to say hawa, hawa, hawa to all of our panelists and to all of you guys for participating and being part of the symposium. Thank you.